Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 3.1 To Victory Welcome back to 21, everybody. Before we get started with this week's episode, I just want to take a moment and apologize if my voice sounds a little distorted or whatever it sounds like to you. Uh, My seasonal allergies have hit me kind of hard this week, so my voice is not exactly what it normally is, but I will do my best to record this episode anyway. So far, we have looked at two of the 21 wonders of the ancient world, the Ishtar Gate of Babylon and the Temple Complex at Abu Simbel. Both of these wonders were constructed with religious purposes in mind. That was definitely a common theme in the ancient world. Much more than today, the ancient peoples attributed everything to the gods. From weather, to sickness, to food production, to military success. To the ancient peoples, the gods had a hand in everything. And if they were happy with you, then you were successful. But if you did something to anger them, they would punish you in some way. Whether it be a crop failure or a military defeat... Any sort of setback was deemed as a punishment from the gods. When the gods did give you success, though, there would usually be a feast or some sort of monument built or some other kind of celebration. However, the people on the island of Rhodes took things to the extreme. They celebrated a seemingly impossible military victory by constructing the third of our 21 wonders, the Colossus of Rhodes. Before we get to the wonder itself, we first have to look at why the wonder was constructed. The year is 305 BC. Alexander the Great has just reshaped the world with his lightning conquest of the Persian Empire, including the island of Rhodes. The island of Rhodes was an island kingdom in the middle of the Mediterranean. Rhodes' capital was also called Rhodes, just to make things that much more confusing. As we move forward through this story, though, I will do my best to mention the city of Rhodes whenever that comes up and specify between the city and kingdom in general if I have to. Alexander's sudden conquest of the Persian Empire and his equally sudden death shook up the ancient world in ways that were seemingly unimaginable. The generals of Alexander's army decided to split the empire amongst them, seeing as there was no way without massive civil war, would any single one of them be able to lay claim to the entire empire? Its entirety belonged to Alexander, and no one else. As the generals each took control of a certain region of the empire, Rhodes set themselves up to be self-governed once again. As borders were being argued over and determined, relationships quickly began to wane under the stress of new leaders trying to impose their will on their respective territories. Rhodes was a thriving maritime kingdom with one of the most powerful navies of the ancient world. The island of Rhodes is located at the entrance to the Aegean Sea and was thus important to anyone who had ideas of conquering Greece or Western Asia Minor from the east. I have maps of this posted up on the website at 21wonderspodcast.com for reference. The city of Rhodes itself had five harbors, 
which very well might have been the most of any ancient city. This is an unprecedented number of harbors, but it allowed them to not only construct their powerful fleet, but made it an ideal place for trade. With all the room for ships, Rhodes quickly became one of the biggest trading centers in the northern Mediterranean. In 305 BC, tensions began to escalate in the eastern Mediterranean. General Antigonus Monophthalmus, given control of Macedonia and Greece following Alexander's death, set about establishing control over his designated territories. And his first move was to conquer the newly established independent Rhodes. As we previously mentioned, Rhodes stood at the entrance of the Aegean Sea, and it was vital to use the waterways around the island to move an army into mainland Europe from the east. Now, I have seen several different reasons as to why the following conflict took place and how it came out, but I will do my best to pick through the information to find the grains of truth. This is one of the problems with studying ancient history. It is incredibly difficult for us to verify what little information we have from that time period. Nevertheless, based on what we still have around today, I believe I know the main points of what happened on and around the island of Rhodes in 305 to 304 BC. To make matters worse for Antigonus, Ptolemy, Alexander's general who took control of Egypt, made an alliance with the maritime kingdom of Rhodes. This alliance was of great concern to Antigonus I. Now an alliance between Potomac Egypt and the island of Rhodes might not seem like it's that much, but Rhodes' location and its fleet made it a much bigger concern. Antigonus was concerned about Rhodes for two primary reasons. First, he was concerned that Rhodes would build a fleet for Potomac Egypt to launch an invasion and second, that the island would act as a staging ground for an invasion of Greece and Macedon. If Potomac Egypt was thinking about an invasion of Greece, then the island in the middle of the eastern Mediterranean was an ideal location for an ally. But also the Rhodian fleet controlled the entrances to the Aegean Sea. This strategic position was vital if Antigonus wanted to keep a hold of Greece and liberate the rest of Macedonia without outside infringement. But Rhodes would be a tougher nut to crack than he thought. Determined to take the island and secure his southern water border, Antigonus sent his son, Demetrius, to take the island and remove this threat. Demetrius came at Rhodes with an impressive force, more than 350 ships and around 40,000 men. Now those numbers might seem a little high, but they are not so high that they are beyond reality. And there are confirmed accounts of both armies in Greek as well as Roman times that not only matched that number but far exceeded it. So I am inclined to believe that number. Anyway, with this large attack force, Demetrius landed on the island and moved to lay siege to the capital city of Rhodes. Once his army had landed on the island, Demetrius sent the fleet to blockade the five harbors of the city and prevent the Rhodian fleet from getting help or supplies. Now with just the number of attackers, 40,000, you'd think that this strategy would have been successful. I mean, that is no small army or small navy for that matter. And even by modern numbers, those were large forces. And Rhodes was frankly really just confined to their island. The only help was all the way down in Egypt and it would have taken some time before anyone from Egypt could come up and help the Rhodians. 
But the Rhodian fleet was not to be underestimated, nor were their defenses. The city, along with the main harbors, was fortified with serious walls and defense towers. The Rhodian fleet could sit behind these walls and were virtually safe from attack. And despite their greater numbers, the Greek fleet was no match for the Rhodian fleet. They were able to easily run the blockade and then duck back inside their walls, safe with their supplies the city began to desperately need. As the siege dragged on, the Greek army failed at the one main thing you have to do when fighting an island nation. Have an effective blockade. On the island side of the conflict, Demetrius had inherited some heavy siege works from his father from his time with Alexander, and used them to try and take out the walls. But with the blockade being ineffective, the Rhodians were able to keep their men well-fed, supplied, and reinforced. So the usual plan of siege warfare, which is to starve your opponents out, was not going to work here. With the blockade ineffective and the siege seemingly going nowhere, Demetrius moved to Plan B, capturing the harbor and pinching the Rhodian fleet between his land force and his navy. But this was easier said than done. Demetrius and his men, since they could not go through the walls, tried to tunnel under them. But his men were detected and counter tunnels were dug, stopping the Greeks in their tracks. The Rhodian defenses and navy appeared unbreachable in the early stages of the siege. But the Greeks had a secret weapon. Where Demetrius had one main advantage in this conflict was his siege works. As we previously mentioned, Antigonus had brought back some of the siege works from his time with Alexander. And these were effective. The first good news that Demetrius had gotten during the siege. His heavy siege works were able to open up the walls near the harbor. Finally, his men began to attempt to push their way through the hole, but the well-fed, well-supplied soldiers of Rhodes put up a stiff defense. The Greeks, however, were able to move into the city and move on the harbor. However, they were unable to keep the harbor in their possession. Between the Rhodian fleet and the Rhodian soldiers, they were able to push the Greeks back out of their city and plug the hole in the wall. With both his attempted capture of the harbor and blockade falling short, Demetrius turned back to his obvious advantage, the siege works. They had already broken through once, but it was unlikely that the Rhodians would fall for the same trick twice. So he ordered the construction of one of the biggest siege towers in history. This massive tower was nicknamed Helipolis, or City Taker. It certainly must have struck fear into the hearts of the Rhodians when they saw the completed tower moving slowly towards their city. The city taker itself was a quote-unquote wonder. It stood nine stories tall, about 140 feet high, and was about 900 square feet in area. Its sheer size made it difficult to move, but Demetrius figured out a way to move it up to the city's walls. Mounted on wheels, it took over 3,500 men to move it. For its size, however, it moved rather smoothly. The three sides of the tower, which were exposed to the city, were covered in iron to prevent it from catching fire. The wheels were also covered in iron for the same reason. There were also slim openings, where which archers and javelin throwers could launch projectiles into the city, 
but making it difficult for any of the city's defenders to shoot or throw anything through them at the same time. These openings could be closed and opened by a simple machine inside the Helipolis. This seemed like a pretty good plan, but the Rhodians had an answer for this too. As the Helipolis moved up close to the city's walls, the defenders inside Rhodes were able to dislodge some of the iron plates protecting the interior wooden structure. Suddenly exposed to a potential fire, Demetrius ordered the Helipolis back, and it was not used again. Having repelled three separate attacks, Rhodes was looking more and more like it was going to hold on against this greater force. As the siege continued to drag on, casualties began to pile up on both sides. Catapults, archers, and other projectiles from both sides launched fire over both sides of the walls. Demetrius also put some catapults onto his ships to try and destroy the Rhodian navy from the sea by launching fireballs over the harbor walls. However, without a direct line of sight, the Rhodian fleet was able to quickly evade the coming fire. This project was compounded by the fact that Demetrius's ships had to try and avoid the fire arrows being shot at them while they were trying to launch fire into the harbor. As the siege dragged on, the other nations around the Mediterranean began to notice. They were not super happy with Demetrius and his father attempting to take this free state and bring it into their new empire. It served everyone better to have Rhodes remain free and benefit everyone. Sensing perhaps that his favor with the other nations in the area was dwindling, and noticing his casualties piling up before his even real war began, Demetrius decided that he had had enough. About a year after the siege began, Demetrius raised a white flag and came to terms with Rhodes. Now we are unsure as to what exactly those terms were, but Demetrius was able to move his army off the island and move in towards his initial objective, which was mainland Greece. However, we do know that Demetrius was forced to leave a bunch of weapons, tools, and siege works behind on the island. With literally a pile of scrap metal just sitting there, the people of Rhodes wanted to commemorate their victory in spectacular fashion. And boy did they ever. The people of Rhodes decided to build a statue to their chief god, the sun god Helios, in the main harbor to celebrate this victory. To build this statue, they turned to Charez of Lindos. Charez was an architect who lived on the island of Rhodes, but in a smaller city of Lindos. There was no shortage of materials to build this statue. All the materials left behind by Demetrius' army was more than enough. And there was no shortage of money to build it either. Rhodes sold whatever was still in good enough shape to sell of the weaponry left behind and used that money to pay the builders and architects. With all the logistics taken care of, the construction of the statue, which would become known to all of us today as the Colossus, began. Construction of the Colossus began a little more than a decade after the siege ended, in 1290 BC. The base of the statue was pure marble. Marble was the standard for high-end construction in the ancient world, and frankly, it's still one of the standards for purity and beauty in construction to this day. Once the base was complete, the workers began to build the statue. The way they went about it was actually pretty genius. They built a frame out of iron and filled it with stone. 
The workers used iron clamps to keep this frame together, while they made bronze plates to be the exterior of the statue. Bronze is a metal made out of iron and copper melted together, about an 80 to 90% copper and 10 to 20% iron. So it wasn't as strong as pure iron, but a lot stronger than pure copper. Copper is what is known as a soft metal. So making tools or weapons out of copper was not a good idea. The tools or weapons could easily become dull or bent. However, for several hundred years, copper was the only metal around known to man, because iron wasn't a thing yet. So when the ancient peoples figured out how to make iron, bronze was one of the first, biggest, and most breakthrough of inventions. This way, you could save money by not using 100% copper for all your tools and weapons. But the tools and weapons were also much stronger. When iron was finally discovered, it was an extensive, expensive process to make. This is why bronze was utilized so much in ancient times. Copper was common, but fragile, and iron was expensive and rare. Combining the two was revolutionary in the ancient world. In the pile of weapons left behind by Demetrius and his men, there was plenty of both copper and iron needed to make the bronze for the statue. The stone interior and the bronze exterior of the statue made for an incredibly strong structure. They used this method to build the entire statue. As the statue got higher and higher, the workers needed a way to get up to the top of the statue. Scaffolding in ancient times was very unstable, and with the heavy stones and large bronze plates used in the construction, scaffolding was just a death trap. So instead, they built earthen ramps up the sides of the statue. This not only made it much safer to get up to the heights of the statue, but it also made it much easier to move all the metal and stones into position. Plus, they were able to use the dirt to help support the statue as they built it. The Colossus of Rhodes took about 12 years to complete. The statue, now completely covered in glistening bronze, stood towering not only over the harbor, but over the entire Aegean Sea. The statue stood at about 110 feet, or about 34 meters high, making it one of the tallest freestanding statues in history and certainly the tallest in the ancient world. For comparison, the Statue of Liberty is 151 feet high, or about 46 meters. The Colossus, while not quite as tall as the Statue of Liberty, is still massive and impressive by any standard. Besides, it had a bronze exoskeleton, which made it that much more impressive. I have some pictures up on the website of some drawings and works of art depicting what the Colossus might have looked like. We are not sure as to how thick the statue was, as in its girth, but it was said that the Colossus was constructed to human proportions. Massively blown up proportions, but human proportions nonetheless. So if a person was 110 feet tall, I can only imagine how thick the Colossus was. The face of the Colossus was rumored to be modeled after Alexander the Great. While this has been dismissed as most likely fiction, I personally see no reason as to believe it to be true. Alexander was the one man 
who would have been worthy to have his face on the Colossus. Of all the great generals in history, frankly, he deserved it. I also personally want to believe it, because as impressive as Alexander and his conquests were, he died so quickly that there was pretty much nothing in place as far as monuments, statues, or other memorials to him. We aren't even sure where his tomb is. He did have one of the greatest cities in the ancient world named after him, though, so maybe that's memorial enough. Either way, for the people of Rhodes to celebrate their military victory with the face of the greatest general up to that time, it seems fitting. The Colossus of Rhodes must have been blinding to look at in the Mediterranean sun. And contrary to a lot of the medieval paintings and discussions about the Colossus, it's highly unlikely that it would have been built straddling the entrance to the harbor. I have a few pictures of the differing interpretations of the Colossus on the website 21wonderspodcast.com so you can compare them. One thing that the ancient people did better than we do today is their understanding of architecture. They would have known that a structure built like that, straddling the entrance to the harbor, would not be able to hold up its own weight, thus making it a disaster waiting to happen. It's more likely that they built it, standing with its two feet together. This would have been the strongest, most durable way to ensure the statue remained standing. However it was erected, the exact location of the Colossus remains a mystery to us today. There are a few theories, but the prevailing theory is that most likely it would have been built at the harbor entrance, or on a hill overlooking the harbor. Either way, the Colossus of Rhodes was a picture to the world of the prosperity and strength of Rhodes. They were not only strong enough to fend off an invading army, but were wealthy enough to pay for and build this massive structure of precious metal. The Colossus of Rhodes is one of the most iconic wonders of the ancient world. It even made it onto the list of wonders composed by the first ancient historians, and is fully justified to be there. Towering over the Aegean Sea, shimmering in the sun, it must have been absolutely awesome to see. We just don't do anything like this really nowadays. Even our impressive structures are boring, mundane, and kind of uninteresting. There are a few exceptions, as always, but for the most part, we don't construct buildings like the Colossus anymore. I understand that such a massive building would be crazy expensive, but maybe it's just the historical nerd in me hoping for something like that in the future. Either way, the Colossus of Rhodes still stands out to us today as a feat of construction, and as a symbol of hope against unfavorable odds. The Colossus of Rhodes, even to this day, is one of, if not the greatest structure, built purely in celebration, and fully deserves its spot on this list. Next week, we will take a look at what happened to the Colossus once it was finished. We will see how long it stood for, how it fell, and how, if the legends are true, how much it actually weighed the number is astronomical. Yeah.